Welcome to MTVA Unscripted. I'm Jeff Hogan. I'm here with Drs. John Rodas and Stephen Schutzer. So the transformation is in front of us. I'm fresh off a trip to Austin, Texas, and having the opportunity to speak to the largest employers in the country, Fortune 500 companies, about what's happening in the marketplace. It just so happened the CBS News hit this week. And what was the CVS news? You know, basically some announcements about how CVS is branding or rebranding, whatever you want to call it, a separate health services company to curate health services on behalf of Medicare population, commercial consumers directly, what have you. For, for some reason, this was big news to everyone out there. Which is really curious to me because consistently over the last year, we've been observing that every single buka and the consumer companies have set up separate curated health services companies doing exactly the same thing. That in fact, the companies that own 18% of the GDP at this point are looking at how they can or could or should potentially be relevant into the future with all of the things that are changing. To me, this is great news. This is exactly what I said to the employers. This is great news because the things that were being described, and particularly the other announcement that came from Karen Lynch uh, related to how um, a PBM option would operate on a cost plus basis is a direct relation to what is happening in the market. So this, this is a threat to the book of pairs, those moded entities who've had no competition. So, you know, as I said in Austin to the audience, 17 years ago, Harvard professor Porter and, and Elizabeth Ticeberg, who is in Austin at Dell, were the ones who predicted that once we started to move to actual marketplaces, that's when we would see things change dramatically, that innovation would come in, that in fact, data and analytics would be used in a more appropriate way for outcomes and preferred access and better uh, consumer experience in the mix. So, I'll, I'll tell you that we are seeing that. Everyone needs to open their eyes that this is really good news, that in fact, big organizations are seeing a threat to the opacity, integration, business models, call it what you will, and are reacting to that. Take it and embrace it. And as practitioners of value-based healthcare, to me, this is amazing. This is a really cool thing. So this is the first move, folks. Wake up. Buckle up. Uh, things are changing. And mark my word, this is a, a great opportunity for us to see other things happening in the marketplace. The transformation is in front of us. So... I was reading uh, the interview the other day, Karen Lynch, the CEO of CVS, um, on the whole conversation about aggregation versus integration. You know, we could chat for a few minutes about the difference between healthcare aggregation and healthcare integration. 
and I think we need to talk about data aggregation, data integration, which is a little bit different, but certainly related. So I've seen in the aggregation of the last couple of decades, a lot of billions of dollars getting thrown at acquisitions and putting things together. But sometimes it's in a non-necessarily logical way in my mind. It's it's kind of like people thinking, oh, I need a I need to make a car. So I need to buy a chassis and I need to buy a, a motor and I need to buy an engine and I need to buy the body. And I'm, I'm going to and that, so I have all the pieces of a car, but at the end of the day, different models, different makes. So you don't really have a car. You don't have anything integrated. And I think other systems are doing it, I think, in a little more systematic way with the with a plant to actually say, okay, what are the pieces we need to have an integrated system? You know, John, you, you use the word in your question, you use the word logical, right? I, I think that's a key word. And you think about what we did in 2007, we aggregated 10 orthopedic surgeons that previously greet each other very unceremoniously, let's put it that way, because we had a like interest and a common vision. I think that was a smart aggregation of assets. And then, you know, if you recall, because you were there, we got these 10 guys aligned because all their joint replacement. And then the spying guys say, hey, we want to be part of you. Well, wait a minute. Is that logical or is it not logical aggregation? And since half of our joint patients have spine problems, it seemed like a logical aggregation. And then the sports guys and the trauma guys. So we aggregated 45 orthopedic surgeons because it made sense, right? We talked about people. The raw material were, were people, right? So that made sense. Would it have made sense to aggregate at that time with you know general surgeons? And no. So I don't want to parse words too much, but there's something about aggregation that does make logical sense, right? If you look at what they're doing, they all use the same language, curation of health services. That means we have these things in a basket. If you're using our network right now, you've got to purchase better under a CAA and determine whether these things are relevant to your unique population or not. But the way we're going to purvey them to you is we have one MSK solution, we have one diabetes solution, we have one primary care solution. Is that a marketplace? No, it is not at this point. I'm what do you think though, you know, how would you compare the moves that CVS is making compared to the United Behemoth? <laughs> because, you know, I think there's, it seems their strategy has been a little different. Obviously, you know, they don't have a pharmacy side that CVS had. So, but, you know, they, it was more of, I would say, physician-based. I mean, I think they said, okay, we need to get a bunch of physicians, right? And they, the acquisition of Optum. And and even before they acquired, you know, Optum, totally Optum, of course, was acquiring practices that were already moving to value, you know, kind of my friend Steve Strongwater's practice, Atrius in, the, in New England, that you guys are familiar with outside of Boston, you know, were they were, as Steve Strongwater told me, the at the bleeding edge of risk, they were fully at risk, those contracts. So the docs were already working in a value-based world. And then, of course, Optum now has bought Ambulatory Surgery Center. So it seems when you think about integration, now let's move from aggregation to integration, it seems like their structure might be a little more integrated. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really important question, John. So there are some common denominators. You know, what is the common denominator for all of these, it's um, what we euphemistically call advanced primary care. You know, some actually have direct primary care aspects and we could get into the differences between those things. You know, CVS was late to the game in acquiring 
um, advanced primary care entities. They did Oak Street, obviously. They bought Signify. Was that a primary care entity? I'll argue that it's not. You know, that's a unique element of their portfolio and they got unique intel, particularly into Medicare beneficiaries and um, risk adjustment and things like that. You know, uh, we were really lucky at this PPGH summit to hear the keynote speaker was Rashika from formerly of Iora. Uh, he, he was brilliant and provocative uh, as ever. You know, if you take a look at what Iora has accomplished with moving to full risk, um, particularly in Medicare uh, and using integrated practice units and this year and their ACL reach programs, they're saving 20% of what was, uh, you know, on a risk adjusted basis, 20, 20. And his comment is we should be doubling that, uh, you know. So, so to your question, John, everybody is doing something a little bit different and we're really in the infancy of what these curated models are going to look like. We're in the infancy of what a tech-enabled advanced primary care organization is going to look like. Why? Because all of them, all of the 14 or 18 that are out there kind of battling each other on models are, you know, looking for the same legacy fee-for-service primary care groups that have been providing service in regions forever already have beneficiaries in the Medicare markets and in the commercial markets and the Medicaid markets and uh, occupational markets, and they're looking and they're picking partners. I mean, we're still we're still doing that dance. Are we are we uh, deep into full capitation? There's a few that are. You know, it's about five percent of the market though. At this point, we need to get to that tipping point, Steve. The twelve percent. Um, this is what we're in the middle of right now. We, each of these models is looking differently on how they're going to use advanced primary care to de-risk populations, unique populations. Um, so, um, you know, that's that's my answer to this question. Do I think the uh, curation of health services is, is the answer? No, there are already others in the marketplace who are saying, we're not going to curate anything. We're, we're going to we're going to integrate point solutions into a care pass that are capitated. We're going to own the whole thing and we're going to push all of the different aspects of longitudinal care to be more innovative, not to just say, this is what we do for PEPM. Um, this is just the beginning. It's really exciting to observe it. Yeah. Jeff, I, I share your enthusiasm and you know, we've we both go back to that iconic book, Redefining Healthcare, all the time, right? John, you do too. You you were at the first class, and I was at the second class many, many years ago. But you know, I I guess, and I got I, I remember that article. I think it was over the summer by Jeff Goldsmith that we all we talked about then the failure of vertical integration yeah. in in industry today, but also in healthcare. I mean, you know, and he quoted I think Geisinger's uh, disastrous quarter i mean a year they lost 800 million dollars and they are the most i i looked at them as the consummate vertical integrated yeah, agreed and they own it all right. they own the docs the docs seem to be happy and they own an insurance company and so vertical integration healthcare hasn't worked but 
if you think about it, Jeff, I mean, an integrated practice unit is an integration of assets, right? Focused around a patient. And I think if I recall Professor Goldsmith's point at the end, he, he said that, you know, the raw materials of healthcare are not iron ore or aluminum. They're people and their relationships. And that's probably why it's failed at a, at a vertical integration. But I think I've been a big advocate for integrated practice unit and collaborating services around a patient's condition. But then those have to integrate, right, amongst those different pro providers, but also integrate with a central core, right? So that's that really is data integration, isn't it? Yeah, let me ask you. So the, you, you, you prompt me to think of, so let's think of the Geisinger model, you know, because I, I agree. I thought they were like the gold standard, right? Was the problem at the end of the day, you know, as you start to reduce costs and provide better care, right, the, the essence of value, are the hospitals the ones who end up suffering? And is a system like even Geisinger, which is a big integrated system, but still a lot of the revenue comes from the hospital side. And do you think in their success, they end up shooting themselves in the foot because they're dependent on that? I don't know if that was the real problem, but you know, I, I look around the country and I ask myself, is there any health system? And maybe you guys have a thought on this. Are there any health systems, because if guys give us the gold standard, that are able to do full integration and are doing a good job at it and are mm. still managed to make some kind of profit margin and provide good service to their patients and have safe quality care? You know, in the for-profit sector, I mean, the tenant, uh, HCA, and the, the, the faith-based Ascension Trinity, the, the secular groups, I, I just don't, I just don't see the health systems f taking the mantle here and being able to be successful because their models, I think, are still so dependent on the hospital revenue. And all these things we're talking about at the end of the day, we're going to hit hospitals, you know, I think the biggest, but they're going to have the biggest hit. So it, can you think of an example, either regionally, like Isagur, because they were a regional player or nationally that are doing a good job at this so so I, I love i love the way you're thinking john and you know it comes back to data analytics and that was a big topic at pbgh you know hey we can even get our data and i said what what about analytics when you get your data do you are you all looking at pie graphs and the answer was yes you know not having actual information i said just think about having all of your data going back 10 years and then having the analytics to show exactly what is wrong with your population. You know, the variation in cost and quality, state of care optimization, fragmentation from lack of primary care, and, you know, all of these types of things. I said, the hospitals and providers that work with you suffer from the same problem that, you know, they're getting graded by arbitrary insurance companies on their ACOs outcomes and they get the data 14 months later, completely uh, useless. So with really good data and analytics that show all of this uh, ridiculousness, bad quality, site of care stuff, you can act on that, but so can the providers who take risk on your populations. They, they will get that insight as well. I go back, John, to answer your question directly to the Dartmouth Atlas project, you know, uh, that purposefully said, let's show the variation in cost and quality by uh, the standard care variation in regions uh, by hospital systems. And answer your question, Mayo has always been 1.0. 1.0, okay? 
for for decades. That means it's institutionalized in in the culture. You know, there was a a really great discussion uh, around using brand hospital transparency as kind of the basis for employers and regions to see variation in cost and quality. And I said, yeah, it's really great that you do that, but you know where I find the greatest use of RAND um, is to look at the variation in cost and quality inside of health systems by service lines. I said, all of you in the audience, you are, you have a basket of services that represent 85 to 90% of everything that you finance and hips and knees and babies and shoulders and cabbages and colonoscopies and things like this. And if you can get rid of variation in cost and quality for those things and get predictability and a warranty on those things, you solve most of your problems. And if you apportion advanced primary care to your organizations using a data and analytics vendor that is aligned, you solve the rest of your problems as well from, from a risk point of view. The problem is, John, just what you just said, hospital um, hospital presidents, if you ask them, don't know what the hip or knee or shoulder costs. Uh, I, I dare say that a Mayo Clinic does because they're following standard of care in everything. And they've been able in their culture for decades to maintain that 1.0 Dartmouth paradigm. So I know that was a really circuitous answer to your question, but that's just kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. You know, John, I've spoken with folks from various health systems. And as you know, we've we've also worked in one and some of them are still trying to figure out their outpatient strategy. I mean, that that's how far behind they are. Um, and then we talk about, you know, the retail giants and moving to risk. And more recently, I've been sort of following this movement with direct primary care. And, and where I'm going with this, Jeff has always mentioned for years, has mentioned that the value of technology-enabled at-risk primary care groups. And it's just interesting to see this groundswell of energy moving to direct primary care, which I thought originally were like glorified concierge primary care. But they're starting to move. They're, they're raising capital, big capital. They're independent. They're private. They want to work around the bucas. And they're willing to now move to take risk. And moving fast. I mean, not slow, but not glacially. But so, but again, that requires integration to your know, data integration, right? We're taking the raw elements, refining those elements, looking for cost and quality outliers, and that requires data integration and analysis. Yeah, you know, you guys say it always, always, and Jeff certainly always harps on the value of the data. And I think you guys are, <laughs> you know, when you when you when you aggregate all of this data that all these folks have now, Jeff, whether it's the employer or the CS Aetna, you can really track a patient through the continuum of care. So I totally agree with you, Jeff, using RAND data. The right way to do that is actually get at the service line level to really reduce the variability cost quality for, for a lot of the things that I won't, I don't want to call them commodities because I don't think a hip replacement is a commodity, but if you, you look, if you can rate the value based on the quality, you, we know there's a lot of variability. But if you really can follow a patient through their journey, all the money they're spending, the tests they're having, the chiropractic visits, the non-prescription the non drugs they're buying, 
there's huge opportunities. It's, the trick is going to be getting that, not not aggregating it, but to your point, integrating it and analyzing it. And and there's obviously huge opportunities in that space. But going back to the original question, you know, regionally, you know, I think the key for health systems is is they've got to have a diversified portfolio. I think that's the only way it's going to work. And then if they have a diversified portfolio, they could work with, if they don't employ the direct, the direct primary care folks themselves, they could partner with them and say, hey, our mm-hmm. system regionally, let's say, can we can provide all the care for your patients and, and you know, we'll, we'll triage them to the lower cost folks. And, and, you know, they'll probably still have some high cost services within their whole portfolio, but I think they can manage it better in that regard. But otherwise, the ones that are very hospital dependent that don't have a network and don't have a a revenue stream that's more diversified, I think are going to be very vulnerable. So so just a a couple of things and bring some practicality. This is a really good um, discussion, but, you know, some of the things that the largest employers in the country are dealing with right now, um, you know, obviously they have CAA to deal with uh, they've traditionally been dependent on brokers and consultants who don't have aligned interests. You know, one of the most interesting panels uh, at PBGH, and I, I got to talk to um, Rob from eBay, who, who manages their, their plan. Really, really smart guy who took on the PBM uh, thing in the last couple of years, just learning about it and uh, what have you. And this is a big problem. You just talked about aggregation, integration. Uh, the big companies having all of this data. And he used an analogy in his presentation. He said, I felt like I was playing checkers and all of these big aggregators, uh, the Bukas were playing chess. And, uh, you know, they could, they had an answer for everything I had to say or do. I, I knew intuitively we could do a lot better. And he said, you know, the first time around, he went to a C-suite and they told them, no, yeah, you have all the data and you have everything to prove that we should make a move to someone else, but we're not going to do it. And he said, finally, he got leadership that allowed him to do it. And they're seeing results as well. But it was really hard. And that's something, you know, I, I see a lot of time on LinkedIn, lots of influencers and who, you know, complain about everything that, oh, this one's bad and that one's bad and what have you. Guess what? This does not change overnight, okay? These huge multi-billion dollar companies, they have lots of data, lots of analytics. They have big sales forces and it's going to be tough, especially now that CHROs are now trying to drag their C-suites into this discussion saying to them, I know you didn't think you could do anything with this in the past, but now we not only... Uh, should we, but we have to, okay? And things are changing. So believe us that there are some incremental, simple things that we can do, including doing the due diligence to bring in a new PBM vendor, um, doing uh, advanced primary care to de-risk our plans and things like this. This is a behemoth task. This is a behemoth task. And anyone who thinks differently is delusional at this point. So especially when these big Fortune 500 companies are telling us about it, another another company was talking about how they changed carriers and literally they finally read their administrative services agreement on their self-funded plan and realized that the administrative services agreement blocked them from NPI level data on cost and quality. So they wrote it out. 
But their broker didn't want to do that. They had to get someone else to help them to do this. So this is complicated. It's not going to be easy. Be patient. We are seeing, okay, when Karen Lynch gets up there and says, all right, we're going to do this. Cigna said it a month or so ago. We're we're going to take our cues from Cuban and AJ and what have you. Why? Because they're eating into our revenues and people want certitude um, and predictability around their costs and quality and uh, what have you. So I'm very optimistic but I also don't expect this to happen overnight the way some people think it's going to happen. It's not, it's gonna take some time. Yeah. So, so John, to come back to your original question, do the three of us agree that vertical integration in healthcare is a relic? True vertical integration, owning everything in healthcare, is that a relic? It might be, Steve. I think, I think in a system, if there's a system out there that has enough of, of what I said, a real true, network of services and their revenue stream is not 80%, 70%, 50% depending on hospital revenue. You know, if they have behavioral health and if they have a rehab network and they have ambulatory surgery centers, you know, and they have a, a solid physician, you know, base there, I think there's still opportunities. I, I think, you know, but again, I always, in the back of my mind, I hear guys, you know, I hear, I hear that because, because you remember they started their insurance company and, and when they started, they started with their employees, right? They said, Oh, well, let's, well, let's, we're in this business. Let's start with our own employees. And then we'll spend from expand from there. And I don't know. I, I, I think I, I'm curious here what Jeff thinks, but I, I'm not sure. So I keep in my mind thinking it's possible, but eh, I'm not sure I have any good examples. Thanks. Thanks for giving me a softball, Steve. So the it's the it's an existential question. And so my response is, do you want it to be a relic or not? And purchasers have not made a decision on whether they want it to be a relic or not. I said to this group, who are some of the biggest companies in the country, you are going to determine what the next product looks like. You have to make those demands on the system for data and analytics. You have to demand better from the system. You have to demand the providers who aren't reliant on RVUs. Uh, you have to decide what it is you want. I made a I made a comment. One of the really great presenters at this was from Berkshire Hathaway talking about what they'd done and I said that, you know, to me, Berkshire Hathaway has just been the company that I followed from an ethical and performance uh, point of view as the paradigm for decades. And I've had it in my portfolio since I had no money at all when I started in my career and try and get out annually uh, to the annual meeting. Um, and about six years ago, um, this big escapade with 39,000 people in the building before the whole thing started, Warren Buffett asked a very old man who was deep in the audience to stand up. And that old man was John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. And he said, you know, he, he had all of these giants on his board of directors sitting up front, Tim Cook and all, all these other folks. And he, he asked Bogle to stand up and he said, this man has done more for financial services in the retirement industry than any one person in the history of this country, including anybody that's in this room, okay? And they gave him the whole place, gave him a thunderous response. And he died, I believe it was the following 
year. And I, I asked the group at PBGH, I said, please visualize. And you may remember this talk, you might not, 10 years from now. What did John Bogle do? He made the stockbroker who in retirement plans an artifact of the system, a dinosaur. And you can go online right now, any of you, and start a 401k that's consumer-friendly, data-oriented, performance-oriented, asset-allocated, completely transparent around fees, does all of the procurement for you in less than an hour uh, right now and know everything about it. Is that what you want for healthcare? And if it is, that's what all of you have to demand. So Steve, your question is completely appropriate. It's up to the purchasers who have not had anything to stay. They've let this happen to them over time. And also, you know, you're both doctors. I had this conversation with a couple of doctors that were there as well, complaining about Optum owning 90,000 people. Guess what? Drag your ass out of that system if you don't like it. Get over to a Privia or a Wellvana or something like this. Take agency over your life. And, you know, so... I'm a little passionate about this. Thank you for that question. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Amen. Yeah. 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 It's got to No, I was going to say it comes down to one of Peter Drucker's principles. And I've learned so much from patients in my practice. I, I was very lucky over almost 40 years to have some really successful business people. And I would spend time with them, nothing to do with their problem, just to learn. And, 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 Peter Drucker's principle to ask yourself, am I doing a good job or can I do a good job running this asset? And if the answer is no, divest it. You should own it, right? Yeah, but you know, just to, and I agree totally, of course. And 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 like you, I love to learn from not just my patients, but even when I was a president of a hospital, I would go visit all my my board members, own manufacturing companies, and and even some patients actually did. And I would say, can I come visit your factory and? And, and, you know, I've always learned from all of them about how they how they built in quality and safety and reduced waste and all the things we've learned about in, in, in Lean Six Sigma. But, but you know, getting rid of non-performing assets it, it, from the hospital side is not an easy thing to do. Because when you think of the what are those programs they shut down? Well, they stopped their integrative medicine programs because, well, all right, does not, that seems to be losing money. Although, if I think from a patient care point of view, that's probably much that's the place you should be putting money in the, in the, in the small regional community hospitals that deliver a baby every other day, you would think, and, that, and that's clearly your money losers, just on a pure revenue basis, they're money losers. And if you added the risk of, of doing obstetrics, the malpractice risk, that's adds even more to it. They can't shut down because the regulations in most States limit you from shutting things out. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest challenges which is why I have, I, I'm always worried about hospitals. Not worried because I think some of they deserve what they got in some cases. I think they're going to be they're not able to pivot the way some companies do. But but, but you you sparked a question in my mind of running and and maybe it's Jeff and maybe it's a question. When I think of your PBH group and the, the size. Do you think size of these companies hinders some of the progress, or do you think it's an asset? And let me maybe be more specific. I'm thinking here in Connecticut, right? I look at a company like Sikorsky. They used to be a very local, regional company. Yes, of course, they had suppliers from all around, but pretty much most of their base was here in Connecticut. But now it's Lockheed Martin, right? Which is, you know, multi-billion dollar international company, a great company. But I'm thinking Sikorsky probably had a better chance to actually do some of the things we're talking about. I think the large companies that are international and, and geographically diverse 
other than the pharmacy side, which I think is where a lot of them are starting with PBM kind of stuff, because that's almost low hanging, that's low hanging fruit, as opposed to the stuff you talked about before about, you know, using RAND data to reduce variability in quality um, and cost across their, when you think about the whole country, that's a lot of effort. What, what do you, is size an issue, is it an obstacle or is it an asset? So it depends, you know, and I saw that this week as well. Some of these organizations, you know, are, have had the resources to do things differently. I mean, I, I was honored and had the opportunity to sit at the table with the folks from Boeing who are just doing amazing stuff. You know, they, they do pilots in individual areas. The Walmart uh, folks, Lisa Wood was there and, and talked about how they try something first. They've, they've been doing a maternal health uh, initiative that's been really successful with doulas. And it's it's really remarkable how they have, you know, kind of parsed things out. They try them. They get the approval of C-suite after they've had some uh, results in particular areas. Others don't necessarily have those resources. And, you know, some have the resources, but they don't necessarily have the ear of their C-suite. I mean, that's been part of the discussion too, where they have all the data and analytics to prove that this will work. And they go to leadership and leadership, nah, we don't want to do that. Too much risk, stay with the big four or three uh, or whatever. So the the answer is it depends. I'll, I'll tell you, I heard from a couple of companies who you know, made it really clear, just think about Boeing, sourcing is everything. You know, that's what they do. Every nut and bolt and process is, is part of sourcing. It's built into their cultures. And it's just intuitive to do the same thing here, especially since they need skilled labor to do what they're doing. They have to attract, attract and keep them and you know, have a competitive package and a great consumer experience. We we talked about that. Think about the big bukas. What are their net promoter scores? I think United is one, maybe Aetna is 16. You know, what is a really great advanced primary care organization? 86, 90, what have you. That makes your people happy, you know? So, so the answer is there's variability on capabilities, even at, you know, the big level. Too, you know, and as we come down market, because of the, the fewer resources that employers have in the middle market, it's even more important to do this because they're also buying stop loss. And, you know, it's another aspect uh, of the plans that makes them vulnerable to higher increases and things like this. So it's it's a it's a complicated question. But I'm, you know, I'm really energized to see companies that are doing this now with their populations and having measurable results. That's a great, great comment, Jeff, that I I certainly couldn't opine on. But thinking back at your last comment made me think about hospitals and vertical integration. And maybe the answer is not to divest of the programs that aren't doing well, but to empower people who can run them to run them, Right. I think about our own center of excellence. Would it ever have run if the health system was running that? No. How about the ambulatory, ambulatory surgical center was started as a joint venture? If the health system was running an orthopedic ASC, would it perform like it is now? They're crushing it. No, right? So maybe the answer is for hospital systems that that want to stay viable in vertically integrated markets, empower people who can run them to run them. I'm going to leave it with that thought. Yeah, I 
can't disagree with you, although I could tell you from just practical point of view, that's a tough sell. You know, you know, I think it's we've had it now decades of administrators in the healthcare system that came out of finance. And it is changing, of course. And you're starting to get more physician type nurse leaders, clinical leaders, pharmacists, physicians, and nurses. And I think perhaps there's there's some hope there to your point. But I, I think when it comes from the the folks who came up the ranks of finance, they don't trust doctors actually or clinicians to run anything. I, I, yeah, that's just my my two cents on that. Jeff, what do you, th- you thought on that? I I think careful, uh, Jeff. You, you got two doctors on the phone, so be careful what you say here. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, this is a tough one. You know, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say something here, and I think you'll both agree with it. How's that for the politician coming back out? This is a tremendous opportunity to align uh, providers and purchasers directly. And if you think about it, the middlemen have not wanted them to be aligned. They wanted to, you know, manipulate what these things look like or add cost and uh, what have you. And, you know, that's the great opportunity here right now is uh, to create alignment Um you know, uh, for the sake of alignment. We had a conversation earlier in the week, you know, and and by the way, this was a big topic this week too, the paucity of primary care, you know, nobody going into it and what have you. And I heard Rashika talk about how they use their integrated practice unit and how the doctor deals with the comorbids and how the APRMs do a lot of the, um, a a ton of the clinical and, how they use a firm D and a, a behaviorist to, as a team, you know, to work on risk and understand risk, you know, as part of it, you know, what percentage of the American population are being, being treated with that beautiful model at this point? It's very small. You know, there's a great opportunity. Why? Because nobody has demanded that type of model in the past, you know, except the Rachika and, you know, uh, a few others out there in the marketplace, but it, it seems to be a, a beautiful, elegant model. I'll argue that all of these digital point solutions that are out there, you know, the employers are playing whack-a-mole with, hey, we need this, we need that. They could be integrated into an integrated practice unit. You know, hey, this polychronic population, they need an MSK, they need a behaviorist, they need a GLP-1. And by the way, all of those should be working together and integrating into the team as well. I don't think we've even scratched the surface on the opportunity for appropriately apportioning clinical resources. I don't have to be doctors to the treatment of patients. And I didn't even bring up AI. Obviously, this is another huge potential opportunity uh, as well. So I I probably didn't satisfy either of you with my answer, but that's my answer. Yeah. At least I I would say, though, I agree that this is really where, and it's actually different than all the things we've talked about up until now, is really truthfully the opportunity to provide better care, get better outcomes and lower costs and make a more meaningful difference in the long term, not the one year, two year cycle of, you know, renewals of your 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 third party administrators, but really making meaningful difference for your employees is indeed what you've just said. The, the managing their hypertension optimally 
preventing their diabetes when they're pre-diabetic. And, you know, that's where you can make a huge, huge, huge difference over the 10, 20, 30 year employee life cycle and beyond if they're they're often covered forever, you know, after that. I think I think you're right. I do I do believe we've only scratched the surface, you know, no doubt about it. I, but the question first, and then because who's going to provide these services? That's the that's the challenge. And, and you know, is it physicians? Is it going to be nurse practitioners? Who? Because that's where there's a real paucity and shortage of, of folks. But I, but I do agree with you. I think that's that's where the huge opportunity is. So I think we've come full circle. This was this was a great conversation. Um, I mean, I I think this is a a really good wrap up. We're um, you know as a moving to value alliance. We're actually seeing influencers out there in the marketplace cause uh, the moded behemoths to change their behaviors. That's a positive, you know, it really is. And we're also seeing some of the biggest companies in the country um, invest in solutions to give better access to care, to create predictability around outcomes, to get their data so they have better insight into their unique populations. I think these are things for us to celebrate. Yeah, and and you know, and I think I, I would totally agree. And I think your your comment before, and related to my question about is size a problem, the advantage of size is, and, and you learn this, of course, in any kind of process or program methodology, you get to try things out. So even if you're a big multinational corporation, you could say, okay, in let's take Boeing's example. Is it, well, look, you know, in Charleston, South Carolina, we're going to try this for the folks who are assembling the, 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 the 777s. Let's just, you know, for, for that. And you could try it. And then if it works there, then you could bring it up to scale. I think that is one of the huge advantages, actually, is of, of all of this. So I, I think it's exciting that there's a lot of movement. And I'm glad you had a, a great opportunity out there at the, at the PBH meeting to meet with Fortune 500 employers. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and the fact that it sounds like they're all, if they're not doing something, <laughs> they're all certainly at the cusp of doing something. So it's a huge opportunity. So yeah, I'm glad we're wrapping up with this. And Steve, your final final word goes to you, my friend. It's it's been an exciting year. Think back six years ago when we started. You know, in that one little room of the Marriott where we've come. It, it's moving, and it's in that hockey stick phase now with the exponential curve. So I thank you guys. Likewise, likewise. Always a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you guys.